Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. Our fellowship with Him was very good. But our rebellion shattered every relationship. Our sin brought the curse of death. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Our world is broken. We long for our redemption. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world. He lived and died and rose again before returning to his Father's right hand. Soon, Jesus will return. Every eye will see Him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain for sinners who overcame, and He will make all things new. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. Go in your Bibles, and we're going now this morning to the last section of the first chapter here in Revelation, chapter 1. Do you view, do we view life and circumstances through the lens of the character of God Or do we view God through our own experiences and through our own understanding? It's it's a very radically different way to live. If I view life through the lens of the character of God revealed in Scripture, then I see and I have the right perspective for all difficulty, trials, blessing. If I view God through all of my experiences in life, good, bad, and different, then God is going to be obfuscated. It's going to be blurry. I'm not going to have a right understanding as I see in Scripture, as we can learn in Scripture. And as we come to this closing section in the first chapter of Revelation, the Roman Empire, when this letter was written, the Roman Empire was overwhelming. And so when they would bring in captives, when they would bring in slaves, when they would bring in children and those taken, and they would bring them into the epicenter of Rome, they would overwhelm them with the arts, with the architecture, with the military, with everything. The glory of Rome would so overwhelm people that they were intending to bring them up into the glory of Rome and crush out everything they came from. Everything that they once held dear. Bow to this pressure. Bow to this culture. Become part of this culture. I don't know if that 
jogs your memory a little bit, but when Paul wrote to the Romans, he pushed back against that, Romans 12, verse 1. And he says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here we are 2,000 years later and we are in the midst of a culture that is trying to press you in to be one of everybody else. Don't you want to be on the right side of history, is the saying. What about being on the right side of truth? As the people of God, humbly and firmly, we want to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now in this section, Easter Sunday of this year, we focused on a part of this section, so I'm not going to re-preach that entire sermon. You can, you can find that online Easter Sunday. But it comes within this whole section. We focused on Easter Sunday simply on Christ. Here we're going to pull together the servant of Christ and the Son of Man. We're going to take in this entire section of what John saw and what he heard. And here's my aim, is that we're strengthened as the people of God. You see, this letter was given to the churches that were facing persecution, and all they had to do was just calm it down a little. Just leave off the gospel. Don't say that Jesus is the only way. Say that you can do whatever you want to do. Join in. Doesn't it sound like the three Hebrew children in the Old Testament just bow down already? They said, no, we're not bowing to your idol. And Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Caesar is Caesar, and he'll die, and he'll stand before the Lord Jesus. And so it is for us today. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of of the living God. Amen? So what are our right responses? And we see three here. From this passage today, three right responses. What this letter was given for was not for just information, okay? When we gather in small groups, meeting together with small group leaders this afternoon, when we gather in small groups, it's not about becoming intellectual, arguing juggernauts. Okay, well, I heard this view and that view and the other view and the other view and the other view and this person and that person out of the north and out of the... That's not what it's for when we gather in small groups. When we gather in small groups, it's for transformation. How do we apply this truth to our life? There are three right responses, and this is the introduction to this letter, loved ones. If this letter makes you more arrogant or more unkind, you've missed the point of the letter. Because the letter is all about the unveiling of Jesus. And it was given to churches that were being persecuted. And all they had to do was tone down their message and the persecution would go away. They would cease to be a factor in their community and in their culture. But they couldn't because they were under the great commission of Jesus Christ to go make disciples and preach the gospel and baptize them. And so they did. When we respond rightly to this text, we grow stronger. We're strengthened in the power of his might. We become even more useful in his hand, empowered by his spirit. And so our first response we see is admiration for the servant of God. That we would grow in honor and appreciation of this servant of God, of John the apostle, but also of all servants of God. It's a great admiration that we look at this writer, this author, and what he was going through, and we should appreciate him. We thank God for him and for those servants that serve like him. It's right for us to show honor. John, we see as a humble brother and partner. It's right here in the text. He did not portray himself as the exalted apostle. That'll come up on the screen. He's a humble brother and partner. He could have easily said, I'm John. You know, Jesus, he laid back, I I laid back on Jesus the night of his betrayal. And by the way, it wasn't me that betrayed. By the way, he told me the sign of who was going to be betrayed. You know, I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know who I am, right? That could have been John, but this man's been been transformed. 
This man is a servant of the living God. And so he simply says, you know what? I'm your brother. I'm your partner. He's already called himself a servant, a slave of Christ in verse 1. He's simply flattening it out to say, we're equal in the family of God. And his position was different. He was an an eyewitness of Jesus. He was an apostle. That's a non-repeatable office, all right? There are people who call themselves apostles today. They did not see, they have not seen the resurrected Christ and been appointed by him. So they're taking a title for themselves that doesn't belong to them. In one sense, we're all apostles as in sent ones, but to be an apostle in the office, you had to see the resurrected living Savior after his death, burial, and resurrection. And John is that person. And he's saying, but hey, we're in the same family together. I'm your brother. I'm your partner. We fellowship. It's the root word of koinonia. It's where we get deacon from. I'm a servant with you. I'm a co-laborer with you. That's how he viewed himself. United in Christ. So we're united in tribulation, That's trouble or affliction. Here, John's not referring to the great tribulation. That gets his own qualifier, the great tribulation. He says, no, we're going through struggles. We're going through troubles. And we're going through them together because we're not going to, I'm not going to, and you're not going to compromise on the gospel. He said, we're we're brothers, I'm your brother, and we're partners in the kingdom. This is the kingdom, the only kingdom that is without end. And when he says this, you're already in chapter 1 getting the grounding that we have from the Old Testament. The king Nebuchadnezzar, after he lost his mind, his sanity for seven years, and he comes back and he makes the profession of faith. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, those seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is not like my dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and you can just say to generation and generation and generation and generation. The prophecy that was given to and through Daniel about the son of man, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. Daniel had been praying, he'd been fasting and the answer to his immediate request is given the future, the end of the world, Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Do you hear it in John? I turned around and I saw one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all right? You hear me say the word peoples a lot. I'm not making a grammatical error. I'm saying every people group on earth needs to hear the gospel. Not just every nation, because within nation there are people groups and they don't speak the same language. Every people group that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And every other kingdom has risen and gone away. All the kingdoms that we see that are fighting on earth right now are fighting and warring and they appear to be powerful and they rattle their sabers and swords and ships and planes and everything else, they will all go away, loved ones. But not this kingdom. And John is saying, we're part of that kingdom. That's the kingdom that we belong to. You see what he's doing to a suffering church? I'm your brother. We're partnered together in tribulation but we're partnered together in a kingdom without end. And so we have, and we're together in the patient endurance. That's what he says here. This is the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. This is that we are kept, that if we have been redeemed by grace, if I have repented of my sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will keep me. John chapter 10, you can jot that down. Romans chapter 8. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you is not depending on you to finish the work. He will finish the work in you. That is the perseverance of the saints. And so saints, don't just sit back and sing, Jesus, take the wheel. Well, if you've saved me and you're going to keep me, then what, you know, I'll just sit over here. No, 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 no. If we have been redeemed, then we say, Lord Jesus, you help me to take the wheel of all the responsibility you've given to me in my family, in my career, in ministry, in your church, and let me honor you in all of it that you would be magnified however you want to be magnified by my life and by my death. That's what a child of God says, and it's all by grace. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we, you know, wised up to the gospel. No, it's because he opened our blind eyes and he quickened our dead heart. He says, I'm also a fellow sufferer with you. Christianity doesn't put suffering in the fine print. It puts it right out. Jesus has stopped everybody. Hey, you want to follow me? Take up your death. Die to you. Follow me. Gain the whole world. Lose your soul. What have you gained? A fellow sufferer. For the sake of the gospel, loved ones, I think that'll come up on the screen. A fellow sufferer. There it is. John was not living his best life now. Everyone who comes in the name of Jesus saying, you want you, we want you to have your best life now, they have missed the last book of the Bible. Our best life is that which is to come, and it begins the moment of my salvation. So I'm not just suffering through life, just dragging through life. But the life that is to come is without end in the presence of Christ. And I'll be done with this body incarcerated in this body of death and struggle with sin. It'll be gone. But now we get to wage in that warfare. We get to see God doing us what before he saved me, I didn't care if anybody did. I loved my sin. And then he changed me. He saved me. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, the apostle Peter says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, it's not outside of God's will that we suffer, loved ones, will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And notice the verse doesn't end there. That those who are suffering entrust their souls 
And then they, you know what they say? Lord, help me to do as much good as I can. Will you work through me? You bring out of this situation the glory that you deserve while doing good. And it's finally actually good because it's actually him in us at work, not just us. So where was John suffering? Well, he was suffering on the island of Patmos, all right? There's going to be a map come up on the screen of just a wide range of that area. The seven churches are there. Uh, Stephen talked about it last week. The, the mail route, the letters would be delivered throughout that region. And around, under that, that red star is where the island of Patmos is. It must have been a little bit, small rocky island out there in the Aegean Sea. It must have been a little bit like San Francisco's Alcatraz where the, the Romans would put prisoners out on that, like a penal colony, put them out there and good luck, you know, swim away if you want to. You're not going to be able to swim that far. Zoomed in, there it is, there's Patmos, just a small little island, not large at all. There's a picture that will come up of what it looks like now. I doubt it looked like that when John was exiled there. But now there's 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 churches there. There's all kinds of tourism there for people who want to come and see. I want to be on this island where John was given the revelation. And it's the island of Patmos. And why was he there? He was there because he was sentenced out there. He was sent there because of the word of God. That's what he says. I'm here on this island suffering for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I will not back down from the word of God and I will not back down. So I'm standing on the word and I'm proclaiming the word, the testimony. That's the word and I've told you is synonymous, became synonymous with martyr, martus. He said, I'm a martyr. I'm suffering. I'm a witness of Jesus Christ. So I believe the word of God. I stand on the word of God and I speak it. I share it everywhere I go. And so here I am and I'm out here by myself suffering. I'm suffering with you. All he had to do was just stop talking about Jesus. He said, no way. Not a chance. He was also a faithful worshiper. And he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So there he was, and he was worshiping. It was Sunday, that's the day it became known as the Lord's Day. That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So the church began to worship together on Sunday, on the first day of the week. The Jewish people gathered on Friday evening to Saturday, the Sabbath. The Saturday, most of the day until sundown, that was the day for worship. And so as believers would gather in public places, there was less conflict to gather on the Lord's Day. But the day shifted because of the resurrection. Let me ask you, how do you view the Lord's Day? How do you view the Lord's Day? If you're a child of God, then Sunday, the Lord's Day, it holds a different weight in your calendar and in your week. It doesn't mean that you're never gone from gathering to worship and walk together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But what it does mean if you belong and you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, then you are his servant and his day is more important to you than anything else. And so it takes a lot for Sunday gathering to worship to get pushed off the schedule because we're doing something else that at this time is more necessary and more needful than worshiping with my brothers and sisters in Christ. There he was in the spirit. He was alone initially, but he didn't stay alone for long. 
He's there. He's worshiping Jesus. He's remembering all the saints that he's separated from. He was not having a dream, but he was given a vision. There he is in time of prayer, singing, remembering Jesus, worshiping, and then a vision is given to him. An unseen guest shows up. And John is about to give the record of what he heard and what he saw. And we'll see his response is, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It affected him. It impacted him. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and his response was, I fell at his feet as though dead. He heard a loud voice behind him. He writes, he says, it's like a sound of a trumpet. It would be a shofar, a a ram's horn, a loud sound. And that is emphasizing how solemn this occasion was. It's not frivolous. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, on the island. He's using all these prepositions where he was at. I was here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, on the island of Patmos for suffering, for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That put me here. I'm not suffering because I've done wrong. Let me speak to those of you who struggle when something goes wrong and you feel that God is punishing you. Listen to what John says. We're living in a world that's filled with suffering and it's, we don't believe in karma. Karma doesn't exist. We believe in the law of the harvest, but not karma. Karma is a made-up invention. We do believe that Jesus, the perfect one, suffered in our place. What did he do wrong? So John is saying, I'm suffering, but I'm actually suffering because I was doing what is right. And I'm not questioning the Father's love for me. I'm not questioning Christ's love for me. And he hears the loud voice behind him. And he's given instruction what you see. Write it down in a book. I want you to send it to the seven churches. That word in Greek for book, it refers to a scroll made from papyrus. So he's got this job. He's got this instruction. Are we thankful for this servant of God? These disciples, apostles that laid down their lives so that we could have this, the testimony. Secondly, we see adoration for the Son of Man. That's a right response. God, thank you for those who bring us your word. Thank you for the apostles. Thank you for the disciples. Thank you for those parents, grandparents, pastors, teachers in our lives that have brought to us the word of God. Thank you. Great admiration for those who are faithful. But there's a word shift here when it comes to the Son of Man, and it's not just appreciation. This is something reserved for Jesus, for God alone, and it's worship. It's adoration for the Son of Man that we would grow in wonder and worship of the Son of God. It's Jesus. And so here in this next section, he writes down what he sees, what he beholds in this vision. And this is how we want to see Jesus, loved ones. In verses 10 and 11, he sees Jesus as mighty. He said his voice was loud like that of a trumpet. He's mighty. The first time he came and his voice was heard in that little cave, that little dugout stable with Mary and Joseph 
and shepherds and angels nearby. It wasn't a mighty voice. Oh, I know kids can have mighty voices. But Jesus is just, he has a cry. That's not what John hears on the Isle of Patmos. He said, this, this voice is very different. Something is radically different. The first time he came, he came to suffer and die. The first time he came, he came to live the life that I couldn't live, sinless. I heard this voice. And when he returns, he will come to reign and to rule and to judge the earth in righteousness. And so John is saying, I heard his voice and it was mighty. He also sees Jesus as glorious. In verses 12 through 16, he portrays what he sees and what Jesus looks like. Jesus is standing there in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. His appearance that John beheld was awesome and it was glorious like the Son of Man that Daniel beheld. The Son son of Man was Jesus' favorite title that he loved to use of himself. The Son of Man. And some would say, "He he never called himself God. When he used the title Son of Man, every Jewish listener knew what he was saying because they knew their Old Testament and they were waiting on Messiah. Daniel chapter 10 Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the three full weeks. So he's fasting, he's praying, he's repenting. Verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. You see it? His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves oh that'll happen again one day so i was left alone and saw this great vision and so no strength was left in me my radiant appearance was fearfully changed and i retained no strength Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, look at the response of Daniel. I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. You catch that? Daniel's given a vision. Now go back to Revelation. What did John see? John saw this glorious one. What does this glorious Jesus Christ look like clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. It's the imagery of the Old Testament, the priesthood, and the priest in those holy garments. And there he sees uh, the length of your robe would refer to your status, your standing, your, your elevated status. And he says, this robe was long. The Jesus is our great high priest. Then he said, I'm looking at the hairs of his head. They were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, I'm from Montana. 
and you go up into the mountains and that snow is still left there in the middle of the summer and you see the sun shining off the snow, it is absolutely blinding. You can become snow blind if you're in a blizzard. That's what he's saying. I'm looking, I'm trying to see his hair is white, like white snow, like wool. His eyes, like Daniel saw, were like a flame of fire. These are the eyes that pierce through. They see everything that is open, everything that is concealed. It's not hidden from the eyes, the all-seeing gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. And loved ones, those eyes that are penetrating, that eyes, the eyes that burn like fire, it's telling us everything, everything, everything will come into judgment. Every action, every thought, every attitude, he sees it all. There's nothing hidden from him. It's all open to him. We don't hide anything. And yet he chooses to love us? His feet, just like Daniel saw, the legs down, they were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Can you picture these feet? And they're like glowing. And bronze is for the purpose of all the sin that he has beheld with his eyes. Judgment is coming. And these bronze feet will stamp out all sin, all evil, all ungodliness. And this is the Jesus that he has seen, that he's the only one capable of bringing righteous judgment. You and I are not. It's so easy for me to give myself the A and give you the C, the D, the F and overlook my sin and my faults and just focus in on yours and most likely you can do the same. Jesus is without sin. And so he is the one that is fit to reign and to rule and to judge all sin because he's without sin. His voice, this glorious one, John says, was like the roar of many waters. That's what it sounded like to Daniel when he heard him speak. I mean, are we numb by all the entertainment we take in, though? Like, do we hear this? Can we see this with our minds? You can't reproduce this in Hollywood, in a studio, not even with AI, okay? You can't reproduce what Jesus is. Even as we go through Revelation, we will see a lot of like and as, it, it, because words cannot convey how beautiful and how glorious he is. A voice of clarity in authority, drowning out everything and everyone else. How many of you have been uh, to Niagara Falls and you've been on the boat tour down at the bottom of the falls? Raise your hand. Let me see how many of you have gotten spr sprayed by that. Miss, what is it? Made of the mist, something like that, right? When you were on it, let me ask another question. Anybody ever been to New Orleans and you've seen the, uh, the riverboat with the guy on the organ out there on the river? Has anybody seen that? Raise your hand. Well, two, three, four, five people, Okay. Why don't they have the guy on the organ at the Maid of the Mist in Niagara Falls? Because you won't hear the organ. And his organ will get really wet. And I don't think anybody wants to do that. New Orleans, Niagara Falls, different climates. But the point is, if you, you can't even talk to your people while on the boat. You just and it's just pounding, and the rush, and the roar of the water, and it drowns out all other voices, all other instruments, and his, his is the one heard with clarity. Then John says that he's holding seven stars in his right hand. 
the messengers of the churches are in his hand. Jesus is in complete sovereign control of his church, of his servants, and of his shepherds. And he says there's a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth that Jesus is the living word and he'll bring every judgment, decisive judgment upon all who reject him. His word, that two-edged sword, the same word saves and damns. You get that? That Jesus said that I'm the rock and if you fall on me in repentance, if you're broken on me in repentance, if your pride is dashed on me, then you will be bound up, you will be saved, you'll be healed, you'll be redeemed. But if you stumble on me, I'm not gonna worship this Jesus. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I do? Do you know what I want to do? Do you know what my life is? You stumble on me, then Jesus says this rock will crush you in judgment. Same rock, same sword. The saving word is the sanctifying word to all who believe. The same word is the condemning word, the judging word for all who will not believe, for all who will not repent and trust in the Lord Jesus. His word divides right down the line. The unbeliever, until they have their eyes open, they're offended by the word of Christ. The believer treasures the word of Christ. And then John says his face, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What's he saying? I, I couldn't sit there and just look on his face. Moses in the Old Testament, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord took Moses up. He said, how about I put you in a cleft of a rock and I'll cover you and I'll let you see the backside of my glory. And Moses came down like a glowworm, you know, just woo, beaming. And people couldn't look at Moses. Like, Moses, cover your face. And he just saw the backside of the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. John says his face, like the sun, full strength. He is a strong warrior who fights on behalf of his people and kingdom. Do you, do you get what John is doing for those Christians who are suffering? He's saying, do you know who we serve? You can stare all day at the president of the United States and he's not gonna make your eyes go dim. You can stare at the leader of China, North Korea, Russia. You can look them eyeball to eyeball all day long and nothing will happen to your eyes like this. You might have pity as they age, but looking at the face of Christ, you can't. He's saying, you're looking in the wrong places, loved ones. We've dropped our eyes down and we're all concerned about the acorns on the ground like pigs and we've missed the oak tree over our head. Calvin said that. So he's saying, lift your head up. This is the revelation of Jesus. This is the one that we are in kingdom with. This is the one that we are brothers in his family, that we're partners in his gospel, and he is without end, and he will not fail. He will not fail. 
And so he falls down and he's just flat out like he's dead. He's not dead, but he's like he's dead. And we see letter C, he's merciful. This is where rightfully John should be crushed here. John should be just overwhelmed and done. John doesn't say, hey, Jesus, buddy, bro. He falls down like one who is dead. And let me just ask again, have we been so warped by our culture and social media that this doesn't even get to our, our soul anymore, to our heart, because we're numb? I'll confess, that's, that's not hard for me. I have to say, God, you take your word and quicken me again. Remind me again through your word that you're merciful because Jesus comes to him and does the same thing he did to Daniel and he lays his hand on him and says, do not fear. Fear not. Have no fear. Same thing the Lord said to Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Same thing the Lord said to Ezekiel. Same thing the Lord said to Daniel. So whenever somebody comes off with another book, another movie, another something of how they died and they saw heaven, I'm sorry, I'm going with these guys. I really don't need another movie in the collection. And I don't need, you know, Fred or anybody else helping me figure out what heaven's like. I have revelation and we have the scriptures. I'm gonna stick with these guys. And they couldn't even look on him. And you sat in his lap? Okay. All right. Letter D, he's eternal. He's eternal. Jesus is the eternal Son of God and Son of Man. There's no one like Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the first. That's the Greek first letter of the alphabet. He said, I'm the last, omega. I'm the beginning and the end. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus. He said, I'm the living one, first, last, and I'm alive. That's what he said to John. I'm eternal. I'm the eternal word of God. He is, letter E, victorious. We see this in verse 18. The lamb that was slain is alive. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He said, I, I was crucified. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. You're not ever going to put me to death again. That's why we don't celebrate a mass, a re-sacrificing of Christ. The whole book of Hebrews deals with that. He was crucified once. And he is alive forevermore. Jesus, he died once. He was humiliated once, but never again. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he intercedes on the behalf of his children. And John is saying, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? He is exalted, letter F. He's exalted. There is no other king like Jesus. He has no equals and he has no ultimate rivals. If we have surrendered our lives to Christ, then we have zero reason to fear. Amen. And then someone says, yeah, but pastor, you don't know my level of anxiety. But God does. And he's given you his word. He's given you his son. He's given you his spirit. Now, if you're not in Christ, 
then this should evoke fear in you. This should raise concern in you so that you might repent and trust in Jesus. He rules over all life. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he said, I have the keys of death and Hades, all right, to have the keys. Every now and then, a city will say, hey, and here's so-and-so, and they've done something, and we want to honor them. Here's the key to the city. I'll never know exactly what that means, you know? Like, can they, like, go into the city, just show up on a random day? Like, I have a key, and so uh, let me sit in the manager's office or something. I, I, what, it's, it's, it's symbolic, okay? Here's a key to the city. Oh, but Jesus, he says, I have the key to all life and all death. I just took it right out. I... It's all mine. Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, not just the key, but that's all together in that, the authority that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's all his. It's all his and believers are the ones who are saying that now. We, we sing to him now. We live for him now. He is exalted and he is sovereign. We see this in verse 19. He's sovereign. And so he tells John, write this down. I'm gonna, I want you to put this down in a book. I want you to record what you've already seen and what you're about to see, what you're seeing and what will come. That, as I've said already, in verse 19, is a very straightforward, simple outline, introductory way to the book, the things that you have seen, he's writing it now. Those that are, that's in the chapters two and three, and those that are to take place after this, four to the end of the book. Very simple, very straightforward. And then, knowing that he is sovereign and not one promise will fall to the ground, there's one more comfort that we see from John, and that's Jesus' present in verse 20. Contrary to all they were seeing, Jesus was more glorious than Rome, more powerful than emperors, and he was present with his persecuted people. He was also present with his compromising people. So he says right there in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands that are the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Gordon Fee, he says it this way, all right? Jesus and, and just gives John the explanation, and John gives it, he just writes it down. When John himself interprets his images, all right, this will come on the screen, here's a quote. These interpreted images must be held firmly and must serve as a starting point for understanding others. Let me walk that back. Let me say this again. Many people can be confused in Revelation. When you hear Jesus through John say, now let me tell you what the seven stars are and let me tell you what the lampstands are, then you don't have to work very hard because Jesus said, I'm telling you what they are. They're the churches and the messengers of the churches. And that's the way it goes throughout all Revelation. When it's plain and revealed, take it. This letter is for churches. They need to be strengthened. They need to be encouraged. And Jesus is saying, do you see where I am in the church? Do you see where I am in the churches? Do you see that I hold those leaders, even your persecuted leaders? I hold them in my hand and I can do with them whatever I want to do with them. 
And if I want to bring them home to glory, I'll bring them home to glory. If I want to leave them there late into their 90s and them suffer and them give revelations, I'll leave them there. And I am with you. I'm the one with eyes that burn like fire, with hair white as wool, with feet ready to stamp out all sin. And I'm here. I'm walking here. And you're afraid of Washington, D.C. or Lansing or any other nation I can name? Do you get what this vision is all about? It's about the people of God seeing Christ. And he's here. That's a lot of pressure on me. Sometimes you say amen. Would Jesus say amen? Or would Jesus say, actually... Let's, let's work on that a little more wise. But he's here. And this is who John sees. And he's given us the vision. So the last is the application. It's the application. And this is for the saints. To every follower of Christ, if we rightly understand this book, this letter, the unveiling of Christ, then it's going to do something in us. And it's not just going to make us fatheads that we can argue better over, well, the view of the, you know, pre-trib, post-trib, all these things, over coffee somewhere. It's important to understand. But if we miss this, we've missed the point. We've missed Christ. Comfort for the soul, that's going to happen in this book. Comfort for the soul that no matter what we face, no matter what lies ahead, we belong to him. I am my beloved and he is mine. We sang as kids, his banner over me is love. That's who he is. And so there's comfort for the soul that we're not in this alone. We're not in the fire alone. There's another in the fire. We sing all of these songs. But do we sing these songs when our hearts are heavy and we walk through valleys of great shadows of death and grief? That's where we praise the Lord. And not because we're anything special, because he gives us a song in the night. No matter what you face, no matter what I face, no matter what we face together, loved ones, the future is ours because it belongs to Christ and we belong to him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 says this, for this, Paul writing, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that's believers who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together. That's where the word rapture comes from out of Latin, caught up. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what's the point of Paul writing this? Encourage one another with these words. Encourage. It's the next verse, verse 18. Encourage one another with these words. There it is. There's comfort. There's encouragement. It's not simply to be intellectually smarter. 
more knowledge. It doesn't really encourage or comfort anybody. But if you know Christ is returning and you know the loved ones that we have stood at their graveside and we've said goodbye to them in Christ, we're going to see them again. And they're actually, their body's going. It's going before ours. And we're going to be caught up together with him. And you know what? Forever and ever and ever we will be with the Lord. So encourage one another. Encourage, love one another. Pray for one another. Go through those valleys of the shadow of death together. But this isn't the end. Comfort for the soul. Courage in the face of danger. That's a response. If we're going to rightly apply this letter to our lives, then we're going to have courage in the face of danger. That no matter what we face, Jesus wins. He is the good and gracious king, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's my king. Is he your king? That gives courage. All right? If your king is, you know, I, I could give all kinds of descriptions, but I, I think I'm going to stay out of that. Go back to the Philistines, and they sent Goliath out. That's our guy. And David said, yeah, he's big, bigger than me. Let me introduce you to my God and a stone and your sword. Right? It's all about perspective. Courage in the face of danger. If we rightly apply this book, that's what we'll have. And lastly, our third takeaway in this application is Christ-likeness. We're going to become more like Jesus. We're going to love him. And if we're Christ-like, you know what we're going to do with that gospel? We're going to spread this gospel. We're going to let our light shine. Let me go back to the sermon that Jesus gave, Matthew 5, 16. This is what he says. In the same way, okay, remember, Matthew 5, 16 is right in the middle of all kinds of persecution. And Jesus doesn't say, run for the hills and hide in a cave. And he says, no, 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 no. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and praise you. Thank you. Give you a plaque. A little tile on some donated piece of furniture in the church. Oh, no. They'll see your good works and they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I believe that's when someone comes to faith in Christ. And that glorifies the Father in heaven because there's another part of that bride that is being prepared for his Son, Jesus Christ, my Savior. So let me ask you, do you have the three right responses? Do you have the three right responses to John's vision of Jesus? Oh, may we grow in our admiration for the servant of God, our adoration for the Son of Man. And in these coming months, that we rightly apply the word as saints, holy ones, called out ones. That's the ecclesia, called out, set apart, set apart from the world for Christ. That's what a believer is. That's where we belong in a church because we gather with brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that the response of Job is fitting. When Job, finally at the end of all the suffering and all the arguing and the back and forth, and the Lord showed up, and Job responded this way. He said, I had heard of you 
by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. It was already prayed earlier in the service that there may be someone here today and you've heard about Jesus, but you have yet to see Jesus for yourself with eyes of faith. And Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I have a right view of God, which gives me a low view of self. I see myself rightly and a right view of God who is exalted. Do you have that view today? Will you please stand? Father in heaven, Oh, how we need to turn our eyes to see Christ in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, that he has come to seek and to save the lost. Oh God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your church, Lord. Will you comfort our hearts? Will you give us the courage that we need to stand boldly and faithfully and lovingly? And God, make us more like Jesus. Thank you for your servant. And we worship your son in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved. <laughs>